also read the uh, simile of the lotuses which are immersed in the water in the third jhana. So we now um, get to the fourth one. I may have already mentioned that the first three are comparatively simple for the simple reason that there is a very diligent observer in those first three and the diligent observer is still at least to be considered as me I'm observing what's going on although we don't say that naturally but because this observer is there we don't feel the rest of an ego we do have many advantages which I think I have mentioned already but to get into the fourth one one has to for the time of the meditation by being in, while being in the fourth jhana one has to really let go of the that aspect of ego which is still there to support us the observer now while the observer is not totally distinguished in the fourth jhana it is made so subtle and minute that we really need the determination to let go completely we'll see what the Buddha uses as his uh, similes and metaphors to describe that again because with the abandoning of pleasure and pain and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief he enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana which has neither pain nor pleasure and has purity of mindfulness due to equanimity well this is a bit um, difficult to see while obviously in the other three one also doesn't have grief and one doesn't have pain when there is concentration in the first three physical pain does not have a chance to arise however since the first three are not that concentrated as the fourth one it is conceivable that an unpleasant physical feeling could intrude at times which in the fourth one is impossible um, but painful emotional feeling would be highly unlikely what this is to denote is nothing but the explanation of the word equanimity equanimity does have, has neither joy nor grief nor does it have pain or pleasure that's the whole um, reason for the exercise to explain equanimity the fourth one has the, the feeling of going much deeper with the mind and I like to explain it in a way of saying one must be willing to drown in other words one must be willing to give up any personal participation as long as one personally participates 
or wants to participate, one cannot get into the fourth one. And therefore, it gives one a preview of what Nibbana means, at least an inkling. I'm not saying that this is equivalent to Nibbana, please don't misunderstand, but there's an inkling in that. Because as long as one would like to participate in Nibbana, one can't even get near it. Is that clear? So, as long as we want to be, you know, experiencing this fourth one, um, it doesn't work. One has to be able to give up. Now, while the fourth one is being experienced, because of the observer being so very limited at the time, we can't really have the the understanding of I'm really peaceful or anything like that. But afterwards, one sure can. After this, the force has um, uh, again dissipated and one has noticed its impermanence, one can then recognize the fact that one has been utterly peaceful, as peaceful as never before, with a peacefulness which actually dis- is, is indescribable, because we do not have that kind of vocabulary in this ordinary language that we use. The word equanimity does not seem to, at least in my personal um, way of thinking about it, does not seem to suffice to give a meaning to the state of the force. It is all-embracing, all-encompassing, and it has the quality of being away, not being here, but not being anywhere else either. (laughs) Doesn't make it any clearer, does it? (laughs) Well, if I can um, again try once more, when we're here, we do know whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And in the first, second, and third, we do know this is pleasant feeling, this is joyful, this is uh, um, contented. But here, while it's happening, we really don't know. Afterwards, we can recognize that it has been a depth of integration within oneself, which has not been experienced anywhere else. And the understanding arises that this is only possible when one's own personal participation has been eliminated. And one could therefore rightly say that having experienced the fourth jhana, one would not be deterred from, or could not be deterred from practicing diligently to the end. Because there is a personal uh, experience 
that only that is truly peaceful. Now, this does not mean that there is no person or that the ego has been in any manner or form eliminated or even reduced. The understanding has arisen that only through reducing and eliminating, finally eliminating, uh, true peace can arise. So that understanding arises. Just to interrupt myself for a moment, there's Mara again out there Mm -hmm. in the sky. He's uh, all over the place. He's going to appear in the in the footer in a minute. So, um, now with the, uh, I don't think that I mentioned that the joy or the, uh, the, um, what the joy and what the um, equanimity counteract I remember mentioning about the um, initial and sustained application and the confidence which arises and about the piti, the pleasant sensation. I don't know, I don't remember mentioning the um, the second and third, did I? The joy and what our um, uh, benefits are. Did I mention that? Yes. I did. And about the third one also? I did. Okay. So I've, I've first and second. Right, but not the joy, not the, not the contentment. Not the contentment. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, I thought that was that what something uh, missing. Well, I have said about the fourth one about the uh, ego situation that this is understood through that. Now, when we get to the um, the third one, where there is already a depth of uh, absorption, not as deep as the fourth one naturally, but much deeper than the first two. The contentment which arises is an experience of being wishless, no wishes. And we can then recognize that this is our remedy for all dukkha. Because there's no dukkha there, because there are no wishes there. So this is of great benefit, obviously. However, again, I would mention uh, once more that these understandings which arise, which are inside, have to be a mental connection between the experience and our understanding of it. So it has to be the understood experience, which is always after, after we are finished with the concentration, right? So we get an um, object lesson for all three of the characteristics of existence, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, dukkha, and substances, non-self, corelessness, egolessness, through understanding our experiences in the concentration and insight. In terminology of Buddhist terminology, always means inside into one of those three, either impermanence or dukkha or substancelessness or egolessness. So we do have the opportunity to get all three. 
if we look at it correctly. Impermanence, of course, always being present if we see at the end that it has dissipated, which we should never fail to do. We should always at each, but at the end. So if we go as far as the first, we look at it as at the end of the first. If we come as far as the fourth, we look at it at the end of the fourth. I do not wish to imply that we interrupt the flow of the de- uh, absorption by looking at the impermanence of each stage. I want to emphasize at the very end of the meditation, right? That the whole thing has dissipated then. Or at least dissipated to the extent that we had it before. They always have a residue. And uh, that sort of space as a as a base within, but the actual uh, strong uh, experience, of course, disappears. So now the Buddha gives a uh, a simile again, um, metaphor for what it's like to be in the force. I don't know whether it's any more um, telling than what I've told you, we'll see. He sits with pure bright mind extending over this body and there is nothing of his whole body to which the pure bright mind does not extend. Just as though a man were sitting clothed from head to foot in white cloth and there were nothing of his whole body to which the white cloth did not extend, so too the bhikkhu sits with a pure bright mind extending over this body and there is nothing of his whole body to which the pure bright mind does not extend. what the Buddha says the fourth is like there's one other thing I can mention and that is that the first and second um, jhana have a quality of excitement in them whereas the third already has a quality of more depth and the fourth one of course complete depth the fourth one is checkable through not hearing sound, whereas the first three you do hear sound, in the third one I compare that like sitting under a um, glass bowl. The sound can be heard, but it has the protection of the glass bowl under which one sits, so it doesn't impinge very strongly. Mm. I wanted to ask you a question about sure. sound and uh, in the fourth. You know, um, you were saying how that merchant said that he'd been so concentrated he'd never lightened on the sun. That was not a merchant. Oh, that I was a, some ascetic wanderer, yes. And then the Buddha said that he was so concentrated he um, couldn't hear the 500 oxen Well, I wondered how they both knew that there was lightning and thunder and oxen Oh, well, they told that. <laughs> they told that. I didn't tell the whole story. <laughs> when when that uh, wanderer uh, said, he said that when he came out, that uh, he had uh, he was told that that had happened, and he was drenched from head to foot in, in, from the rain, and the Buddha came out and saw this thing happening. They were still going. That The whole story, just tell that, that this was happening. Yes, well, otherwise it would I should have said that, shouldn't I? I was trying to keep myself a little short. 
Um, so there is a, a very good story about the yes uh, maybe I will um, use that now there is a very good um, um, metaphor story in the commentary the Atasalini to the commentary uh, about the explanation of how these first four jhanas appear to be and some of you may have heard me tell this story before but I will uh, repeat it it is compared to a person wandering in the desert and having no nothing to drink and being parched and that is when we haven't got any any concentration or absorption we are parched we are the, our inner being does yearn for something so this person is very thirsty is yearning for water so finally he sees in the distance a pool of water and he gets all excited about that and uh, that is compared to the pleasant sensation of the first jhana because he's pleasurably excited he is desperately interested to get there so he sees that pool of water so now he moves on and he actually uh, comes to that near that water he stands at the edge of it and he is really happy that he's standing at the edge of that pool of water and with that happiness in him he now bends down into the water and drinks and that's compared to the third one because now he achieves this contentment of getting what he wanted and has no wish left and as he has finished drinking he goes to the nearest tree and lies down in the shade without anything happening fourth one so these four do uh, give a bit of an indication of the state of mind um, related to a very ordinary happening and I think we can relate to uh, that wherever stage we have come to we can relate to that those states of mind now again <coughs> comes a little paragraph as he abides thus diligent ardent and self-controlled his memories and intentions based on the household life are abandoned with their abandoning his mind becomes settled in himself quieted brought to singleness and concentrated that is how a bhikkhu develops mindfulness of the body so besides being um, very um, concentrated into the tranquility meditation the Buddha still reminds the bhikkhu that there is the insight to be attained because he is now very diligent and ardent and self-controlled and he is single his mind is single pointed and concentrated now 
When anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, he has included whatever profitable dhammas there are that partake of true knowledge. Profitable dhammas, in this case, that partake of true knowledge means true insight. So the, um, the mindfulness of the body brings true insight. Just as anyone who extends his mind over the great ocean has included whatever streams there are that flow into the ocean, so too, when anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, he has included whatever profitable dhammas there are that partake of true knowledge. In other words, mindfulness of the body, as the Buddha says, brings one to insight into um, all that can be understood just like the ocean has streams and one knows everything what he's explaining here as he does that many times he explains the <clears throat> the pathway of calm through insight the first there was attention to the body and the concentration arose and the pathway of calm arose and from that pathway of calm comes the extended insight, the depth of insight. When anyone has not developed or repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, Mara finds an opportunity and a support in him. Now, does everybody know who Mara is? Anybody not know who Mara is? I, I don't really remember. You don't really remember. Well, you, I'm sure you know who the devil is. <laughs> and Mara is the Buddhist, a Buddhist way of saying the devil but maybe possibly with this difference yes I'm getting a sore throat actually um, although Mara is often talked about in the stories as if he were a person, just like the devil has talked about, as if he had fire coming out of his mouth and had a clump foot and so forth, it is nothing but the tempter in one's own heart. And because of that, all the beauty that we see, if it tempts us to believe, that we could live in the world happily forever after if we just handled it right that's Mara if we only saw beautiful sunsets lovely flowers nobody ever bother us we'd sit all alone in a cave we'd never be bothered that's Mara tempting us into that to believe like that so here the Buddha says, he has more to say about Mara in this Sutta. Here the Buddha says that if one um, has not uh, practiced mindfulness of the body, then one Mara has an opportunity to support us. Because if we haven't seen that this body actually produces nothing but misery, we haven't really looked. The Buddha does not say that the body can have cancer. He says the body is a cancer. 
So mindfulness of the body does bring that understanding. Now that doesn't mean that we then uh, become depressed or disgusted. We see then the dukkha of the body as part of being here in this world as a human being. And it just is. It doesn't need any great attention. It just is. That doesn't mean that we, again, neglect the body completely, but it also means that we do not favor it so much. Middle part. So here he's talking about that. Now he gives a simile. Suppose a man were to throw a heavy stone ball at a heap of wet clay. What do you think, Bikus? Would that heavy stone ball find an entry into that heap of wet clay? Yes, Venerable Sir. So too, Bikus, when anyone has not developed or repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, Mara finds an opportunity and a support in him. In other words, just as the, you can throw this stone ball at clay and then the stone ball gets into the clay, so Mara gets into you if one doesn't develop the mindfulness of the body. Suppose there were a dry, sapless piece of wood and a man came with an upper fire stick, think, sticks, thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. What do you think, Bikus? Would the man light a fire and produce heat by rubbing the dry sapless piece of wood with an upper fire stick? Yes, Venerable Sir. So too, Bikus, when anyone has not developed or repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, Mara finds an opportunity and a support in him. Well, here again, we have a bit of piece of history. No match has invented yet. Two fire sticks, an upper and a lower. In this case, he only needs the upper one because he has a dry, sapless piece of wood, which you can rub against. Usually you have two fire sticks. And uh, this is again a, a bit of um, simile that we would not use today, but we know exactly what it meant. He's giving these similes to impress upon the monks how important the mindfulness of the body is. He says it again and again, but he says it each time with a different um, pictorial expression so that it really sinks in. He knows very well how forgetful and how superficially mindful human beings are. We hear a lot of things, but only some of it goes in. Suppose there were a hollow empty water pot standing on a stand and a man came with a load of water. What do you think, Bikus? Would he be able to pour water into it? Yes, Venerable Sir. So too, Bikus, when anyone has not developed or repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, Mara finds an opportunity and a support in him. So just like you pour water into an empty pot, so Mara can get into you, tempter, temptation gets into you if you haven't practiced and developed mindfulness of the body. When anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, Mara finds no opportunity or support in him. And why is that? Because we can see quite clearly that this body, in whatever we want to call it, produces nothing but difficulties. 
And in order to be a human being, we have to have such a body. So it will eventually dawn on us that being a human being, being in existence, is not as desirable as the thought of one. Which does not mean that we now end existence, because the only way out of existence is to see that we are here with an illusion, that we are seeing things not as they are, but as our mind projects. Now this business of projecting is familiar to everyone on, a, on an ordinary level. Namely, when somebody says something and we project immediately, he or she doesn't like us. Nothing of the sort. The person is just voicing some sort of opinion and is probably not even thinking about us. But we are projecting our own thought pattern into the other person, rather than taking the words at their face value. Happens all the time, I'm sure, Everybody has had experiences of that. Now, this is a projection. We do that with the whole of the universe. We project into it whatever our mind can imagine. The basic reality of the universe are energy particles coming together and falling apart so quickly that they give us an illusion of solidity. All the scientists in the last 15 years have come to that same conclusion that there isn't a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. Has it changed their lives? Not the slightest bit. Another interesting factor of universal physics which has made the slightest bit of impact on their own projections. So you can now maybe possibly from that I understanding that we project into other people that what we either can't stand in ourselves or would like to find in ourselves depending upon which type of person we are. All of us have hate and greed but in different proportions. Now a hate person usually projects into another person all the things they don't like about themselves because they've got heaps of those on hand that they can project. A greed person will project into another person all the things they would like themselves to be because they've got heaps of those on hand <laughs> and find that very easy. Now we do the same with the universe. We can say that there's a beautiful sunset but we can also say that the sky is pink and blue. We can also say that there's color in the sky. We can also say that we are seeing color and we can also say that seeing that color is all there is. So we can come from a beautiful sunset to saying seeing color. 
It's all projection, the whole thing. Whatever we want to make out of it. And we're all capable of making things out of it just the way we please at the moment. Because you must all have the experience of getting up in the morning at some time and thinking, Jesus, a fantastic world to live in. Isn't it marvelous here? And next morning getting up, oh my God, it's time to get up again. And you're, you're in the same place. It's all projection. The whole thing. has no truth to be found in any of it. And this is what we can learn through mindfulness of the body. We can learn it through many things. But the Buddha emphasizes mindfulness of the body because, first of all, the thing is visible. We don't have to imagine a thing we can't project. It's there. Secondly, we can touch it. And thirdly, it's a troublemaker. It's constantly producing trouble. One could say probably without uh, fear of uh, contradiction that every person in the whole world has trouble with their body at one time or another, more times yes than no. A friend of ours said a thing which I still find extremely um, telling in this respect. He said, if you're over 60 and you wake up in the morning without any pains, you're dead. (laughs) 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 And I thought it was very good. (laughs) He doesn't know anything about Buddhism, mind you. (laughs) He just happens to be over 70. So, the emphasis on the body, because it's a troublemaker, and also because we look at it in a, in a projected way again. We have a projection, this is me. Now, who would really want to have a troublemaker as me? Can you imagine for a moment sitting in meditation, as often or as many times as you want to sit, without a body? Wouldn't that be far preferable to having to adjust one's seat and wiggle around and getting the knees in in place and all the rest of it? So instead of thinking, this is me, and uh, trying to identify with it, wouldn't it be far cleverer to see that this is a body and a nuisance? So this is one way that we can get nearer to the dukkha of existence. Also, it's constant movement. It's constantly changing. eh? And this constant movement is um, the constant decay. So it has to be kept in order all the time. Now, just think for a moment how much time we have to spend each day just to get the food together eat it, clean up again, excrete it, go and buy new food. Well, the body has to have it. And it doesn't only need food, it needs drink, needs rest, needs exercise, needs all needs hair cutting, nail cutting, teeth filling, needs so many things. Washing, 
imagine if that all was necessary how much time and energy one would have left over <laughs> so watching the body and also and of course that which I have mentioned already but I mentioned again the fact that not only is the body a real nuisance but it doesn't really have any other function than carping the mind around in this realm in the human realm obviously there are realms where we don't have to have this thing there are other kinds of bodies much more subtle bodies and um, there are realms without bodies but here we have it so it casts the mind around and the mind is reacting to it so something hurts so the mind reacts and says oh I don't feel good today what do you mean I don't feel good today there's something wrong with the body so immediately the mind says I don't feel good today because something's wrong with the body so we have a, um, a relationship between mind and body a very strong one obviously interdependency but the body itself can never tell us I don't feel good today it's only the mind that can do that and of course then the body has many um, functions which bring the mind to desire so there are many um, through the sense contacts so it, it creates a great deal of trouble and if we read the history of mankind the troubles that the bodies of people have gone through it is um, a, a total tragedy so if we look at it that way we do become a little more detached and we also can see that the um, compensations for the difficulties which this body creates are far and few between in fact the best compensation that we can get are the jhanas so this is why the Buddha emphasizes body so much let's see what else he says suppose a man were to throw a light ball of string at a door panel all made of hardwood what do you think because would that light ball of string find an entry into that door panel all made of hardwood no venerable sir it's quite an interesting simile isn't it a ball of string to throw at a door that's made from you know strong wood so too because when anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body Mara finds no opportunity or support in him so when we have seen the things which I've already mentioned it is much easier not to be tempted the temptation that Mara the tempter this temptation that we are always prone to unless we have already seen Nibbana for ourselves is the hope that some of the things that the world obviously has to offer are really going to do it this time they didn't do it last time for us because either we didn't handle it cleverly enough or somebody else got in the way didn't let us 
and um, this time we'll do it right and therefore the world with all its offers will again will finally give us the happiness and peace that we're searching for I call it fool's gold and I actually own a piece of fool's gold which I bought for a dollar in some mining town somewhere it's a piece of rock ordinary rock which has glitters in it and the gold miners were often um, fooled by it because it actually has the same sort of um, look about it as gold you do find gold embedded in rock so when they would take it to the assayer they'd find out that they had brought with great difficulty a huge bag of nothing they, uh, he took all these rocks out and looked at it and said well there's not a bit of gold in this but it looked like gold and this is what I call the temptations and offers of the world they are they glitter but they do not eventually give us what we want they do not satisfy in the end they are sense contacts which are fleeting and somebody who has had a lot of unpleasant sense contacts will of course quite naturally come to the conclusion all he or she needs are a lot of pleasant sense contacts and everything will be fine so we are in a better position in one way if we've had a lot of pleasurable sense contacts to see that none of that did it really for us however again that too is dangerous obviously we're always in danger because these pleasurable sense contacts may also lull us to sleep because we might think oh well I'm alright you know she's right mate so what's there to do it's everything fine and many people do think that way especially in an affluent and fairly easygoing society as we have it here in this country so yet however either way either with a lot of dukkha or with a lot of sukha we can see the truth the Buddha had a lot of sukha he was living in luxury and he saw something needed to be done other and other occasions we find that when we have a lot of dukkha that's the only thing that's going to spur us on to really do it if we don't have enough dukkha we always think well yes it's okay tomorrow today's all right tomorrow I'll do it so no matter what it is the, the body will eventually tell us a story now suppose there were a wet wet sappy piece of wood and a man came with an upper fire stick thinking I shall light a fire I shall produce heat what do you think people would the man light a fire and produce heat by taking the upper fire stick and rubbing the wet sappy piece of wood with it no venerable sir so too because when anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body Mara finds no opportunity or support in him it's an interesting way the Buddha is teaching he's teaching by uh, as if it was a school you know questions and answers it happens all the time that he wants to see whether they're you know still listening suppose there were a water pot full of water brimming so that crows could drink out of it standing on a stand and a man came with a load of water what do you think because would he be able to pour water into it no venerable sir 
So too, because when anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, Mara finds no opportunity or support in him. And he repeats this one. When anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, then he attains the ability to be a witness through realization by direct knowledge of any Dhamma realizable by direct knowledge to which he inclines his mind whenever there is opportunity. The word witness could be construed to mean a knower. Somebody who witnesses something knows something. He knows what's going on. So if we are actually witnessing what's going on with inside of ourselves, we know. He is a witness, he is a knower through the realization of direct knowledge. Direct knowledge is experience. The word direct knowledge means experience. And in this case, the terminology of direct knowledge also means a past moment. I think I will explain this, the, the uh, past moment, at an, in another sutta where they may be mentioned more uh, in a more uh, direct way. Here it's only indirect because the word direct knowledge means the experience and the experience of the actual moment of letting go of the ego, the me, and attaining a totally different um, view of self and the universe, which then develops into, eventually, into the uh, total Nibbana. So he has a, he's a witness through realization by direct knowledge through the experiencing a past moment of any Dhamma, any phenomena, realizable by direct knowledge to which he inclines important in the jhanas. This is important for realization of um, past moments because we can actually make the attempt by our own effort and not wait for the mind to slip into it when it pleases. Maybe it will never please. So we have the direct knowledge, we have the witness realization by direct knowledge of any Dhamma realizable by direct knowledge to which he inclines his mind whenever there is opportunity. It's a very interesting little paragraph, which is not the traditional one, it's not the common one, because it only appears um, at the end here of this particular sutta. Um, opportunity we have all these uh, we have all that same um, sort of situation the opportunity is not necessarily just when we want to but as we are told in other suttas the best opportunity to have deep insight 
is after we've done calm meditation. So if we have an understanding, or an ability, sorry, of going through the different jhanas, whichever one we've got to, and then incline our mind towards realizing phenomena, realizing truth, then the, is the best opportunity. That is the moment. Now there may be other moments. There may be moments without meditation where it overcomes one suddenly that one needs to inquire into something. That's also an opportunity. One should be awake and aware to the proper opportunity when the mind is really inclined. Now here, in a retreat such as this, these opportunities abound. In the city, it doesn't come that often. But the right opportunity and then inclining the mind in the right direction. Now to realize any Dhamma which is realizable by direct knowledge. Again, direct knowledge is the penetration, the penetration into a Nibbanic moment. That's direct knowledge, the terminology for that. And any Dhamma realizable, we are here concerned not with any understanding, but that any phenomena, any Dhamma, contains impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, qualifiness, any one of the three, or all three. So the qualifiness is a non-ego aspect, which is eventually, and in, in the last analysis, that's what we come to. But we can come to that through impermanence, we can come to that through the non-satisfactoriness, or we can go direct to it. So just by realizing that all phenomena, which includes everything, have those three characteristics. They're called the T lakanas, the three characteristics of all existence. This is a unique explanation of the absolute truth which cannot be found anywhere else except in the Buddha's teaching. It has the uniqueness of the detail, the analysis, and the direction of what to do, how to get there. It cannot be seen in any other teaching, although other teachings come to the result of it, but the analysis, the detail, and the guidelines are not there. So here we have actual guidelines, what to do, go through the jhanas, watch, get inside through the body, and as you have the proper opportunity then realize that all phenomena. So in other words, from a practical standpoint, naturally, we can always examine this body in terms of those three characteristics at any time at all. But we can also examine the tree, the flower, the bird, the sky, the cloud, whatever, anything. The thought, all dhammas. All dhammas is everything, all phenomena. It is utterly and completely clear? Totally? <laughs> yes? Uh, in Pali, the Anicca Dukkha Anatta. Anicca is impermanence, which means the constant changeability. Even the universe 
contracts and expands. Dukkha, nothing is totally satisfactory concerned with existence for the simple reason that it is impermanent. Even if we have the greatest of experiences, even that disappears. But also for another reason, because there's constant movement and all movement is irritation and that in itself produces dukkha. And the third one, anatta, the word atta means I, and the syllable an is our English syllable of un, un, unself, non-self. However, that also is a, a, um, a word which leaves something to be desired, because the final understanding that comes is the understanding that not only is there no self, there is no core, kernel, substance in anything, whatever, whatever we name. And so the word anatta has been very much um, decried by the Mahayana tradition who says that's nowhere near sunyata, they call it sunyata. Um, sunyata goes much further, but that opinion is based on the poverty of our translation, the uh, lack of um, vocabulary. It actually means exactly the same thing because the word sunyata denotes void. But not that everything is void, this is also a word, but that everything is void of, of substance, of core, of essence. That's void. And anatta means the same. So we, we see that our, <coughs> our uh, verbal explanations are always fraught with some difficulties that kind of can't be helped. It all boils down to the experience of it, of course. But these are what are called the tilakanas, the three characteristics of the whole of existence, the whole of universe, which can be found within oneself, but can be examined outside of oneself, all dhammas. All dhammas are all phenomena, which include, of course, thought and feeling. Although he does speak only about the body in this particular sutta, uh, when he says dhammas, it means everything. Clear or something else on that? Is there anything said about the, just thinking about like manifestation here, talking about truth and the teaching, it seems like there's more substance in this than there would be, say, you know, in the street scene in the city, obviously. So the balance between them, is, is much said in the teaching about the, about the balance between the three in any one situation, the manifestation, I should say. The, the teaching or the fits? Street scene. Um, no, I was just saying that the two, that, you know, that if, if one applied that way of looking and looking at the three, the streets. The three are characteristics. Yes. Yeah, okay. And, yeah. yeah, okay. Well, uh, yes, certainly. The Buddha said this teaching is nothing but a raft which will take you across the stream, the stream of this existence which is constantly where you're constantly in danger of drowning but once you've got across you don't carry that raft with you you can send it back so that other people may use it 
In other words, it is not the ultimate. It is only the um, uh, means. The teaching is only the means. Once you've gone across there to the other side, and he very often uses the simile of the river for the other side because it has two banks, um, no need for it. Send it back. Somebody else might want it. So it also has in it the um, aspect of anicca, of impermanence, and it has that very strongly, that teaching, because he also said that it will only last 5,000 years after his death, and then the words anicca dukkanatta will not be heard again until the next Buddha arises. And the next Buddha who arises is supposed to be called Maitreya Buddha, which means metta, it's a Sanskrit word for metta, for loving kindness, and the uh, um, time span is eons, whatever eons are. <laughs> I'm afraid, please don't ask me, I don't know. <laughs> it's just a long time. So the teaching itself is impermanent as a substance already. And um, each word that we speak is impermanent. The only thing that matters is to use it and get across and then impermanence is no longer experienced because the only thing that's not impermanent is Nibbana but there's nobody there <laughs> so it has in effect when you look at it from an ultimate standpoint the same characteristics as the street scene. yeah although there's more substance Yes, well, yes, it can take you across. But if you have a mind which is so alert and so awake, you might see the street scene and say, yeah. <laughs> right, that too is possible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm only projecting or whatever, you know. But the ordinary person, as a rule, um, needs a lot of guidance. And that's why he was so... Uh, exact and uh, detailed in his explanations and I must say that I find that one of the most helpful aspects of it because we are left in no doubt about any of our practice we know whether we are doing it right or wrong because even the results are spelled out to us although one does have to put a bit of um, energy into understanding it but we are left in no no doubt what's going on. So this, I, I think, is very helpful. So this is... This is the um, a very interesting little paragraph here. The realization by direct knowledge, which is um, having a Nibbanic moment of any Dhamma, any phenomena, which is realizable by direct knowledge, which means the three characteristics, to which we incline the mind where we put the mind at the right opportunity. Maybe I will finish this. No. Oh, yes, that's a lot of stuff still. <laughs> I will uh, read a little more. Huh? So, again, he's going to give some uh, uh, similes. Suppose there were a water pot full of water, brimming so that crows could drink out of it, standing on a stand. Then as soon as a strong man tipped it, 
Would water come from it each time? Yes, Venerable Sir. So too, Bhikkhus, when anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, then he attains the ability to be a witness through realization by direct knowledge of any Dhamma realizable by direct knowledge to which he inclines his mind whenever there is opportunity. There's another aspect to this little uh, paragraph which I should mention, which I wouldn't ordinarily, but seeing we're reading it. Uh, the Buddha was often asked whether he was omniscient. And uh, he said that he could know whatever he put his mind to, but he couldn't know everything at the same time. And he also said it's impossible to know everything at the same time, but for a realized person, for an enlightened person, they could know that where they incline their mind. And so this is also part of that statement that a person who has attained the ability to be a witness to realization by direct knowledge, which is another way of saying who has become enlightened, of any Dhamma realizable by direct knowledge to which he inclines his mind whenever there is opportunity, um, that he inclines his mind where he wants to put it, and then he knows that. Dhamma, he knows that subject. So that um, applies to a realized person, but it can apply to us when we do become concentrated in our meditation and we do go, go through the jhanas, we can incline our mind to the next one and do it deliberately. And we can incline our mind after having done it to seeing the connection between that state of consciousness and our ordinary state of consciousness. So it is a matter of inclining the mind to where we want to get the knowledge from. That's not uninteresting. Now, suppose there were a square pond on a level piece of ground surrounded by an embankment full of water brimming so that crows could drink out of it then as soon as a strong man loosened the embankment, would water come from it each time? Yes, Venerable Sir. And he repeats the same paragraph. Suppose there were a chariot on even ground at the four crossroads, harnessed to thoroughbreds, waiting with whips lying ready, so that a skilled trainer, a driver of horses to be tamed, might mount and taking the reins in his hand, drive out and back by any road in any way he liked. So too, because when anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, um, it's not printed, through realization by direct knowledge, no, he attains the ability to be a witness through realization by direct knowledge of any Dhamma realizable by direct knowledge to which he inclines his mind whenever there's opportunity. Now, we can assume with certainty that this has to be important, this little paragraph, otherwise he wouldn't be repeating it that many times, and he wouldn't find that many different similes for it. Now, the repetition alone is not conclusive, because we don't know whether the monk, in this case Ananda most likely, who was repeating it, didn't do this repetition on his own because he wanted to be sure he was saying it right, or that the people who eventually wrote this down, who were also all monks, um, didn't repeat it unnecessarily. But finding that many different similes is a typical way for the Buddha to speak. 
So whether we know that this has been spoken by the Buddha or not, it's certainly been spoken all by the same person. Because this is absolutely typical. So when he finds that many different similes for the same thing, it must be very important. So the importance comes to, comes about that the mindfulness of the body is so important. That's the first thing. And the second thing that's so important is that we can incline our mind to where we want to be. We don't have to wait for it to do something for us. This is a very important factor, particularly, of course, for meditators. And another thing which is a little bit interesting, again, is that we can see a bit of history, chariots, harnessed to thoroughbreds, waiting with whips lying, a skilled trainer, a driver of horses to be tamed, who could take the reins and drive out in any way he liked to go. That's the way things were in those days. They didn't have a little Honda waiting outside. When mindfulness of the body is developed, repeatedly practiced, made the vehicle, made the basis, established, consolidated, and properly undertaken, these ten rewards may be expected. Now, the ten rewards that we can get are some of them are called the higher knowledges, and they are only really available to non-return and arahant, to higher, to uh, the two highest attainments. So we can say here that the Buddha is speaking about, in this paragraph, about people who have the highest attainment, although the first few uh, rewards are available uh, to more ordinary people. So the mindfulness of the body developed, repeatedly practiced, made the vehicle, made the basis, established, consolidated, and properly undertaken. And every one of these words is important. Now, he becomes the conqueror of aversion and delight, and aversion does not conquer him, and he abides transcending aversion as it arises. Now that sentence alone is going to take another half hour. <laughs> because this means a non-returner and I think I should explain that tomorrow <laughs> because there is a lot of those things in there that I need to explain and not wait for another sutta to explain it because we are now at the point where this is being um, used the, the rewards are being used and so we need to really look at that yeah talking about non-return and arahants now. So we have again the very um, common practice of the Buddha, namely that he talks about very, very common way of being, like everybody is, all the way to Nibbana in one sutta. That happens over and over again. Just start at the very ordinary level. Now, here, this ordinary level is that the Buddha, that the bhikkhus were talking to each other about mindfulness of the body. That the Buddha had said that it would be very good to do that. So they're all sitting around talking about that, and he said, "Yes, I have said that." And then he gives them the different ways of doing it. 
as we have already discussed in the first sutta, the different uh, body mindfulness meditations. So we are still at a very ordinary stage of being an ordinary worldling. And then as we go through that, we come to the jhanas. And as we've gone through the jhanas, we come, we finish with the fourth one in this one. There are other suttas that go further. This one finishes with the fourth one. And uh, as we finish with that, we, um, we find that the repeated practice of mindfulness brings one to the, to the understanding that dukkha is so all-pervading that we no longer crave the worldly pleasures. And as we no longer do that, we can actually have direct knowledge, which means the, un- the past moment of Nibbana. And there we get, when we've done that, we get ten great benefits. And the ten great benefits are divided up into different parts, and we'll do those tomorrow. It's very interesting about the ten benefits here because we often talk about the ten fetters and they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Is that what you wanted to say? Yeah, I was wondering with the four pre-man the ten benefits? No, only for, no, for non-return yeah. and arahant. And they're not the ten fetters. I'll, I'll explain those at the same time because they overlap again. It's like those eleven... Uh, imperfections which overlap with the five hindrances. Uh, in fact, they are more like an elaboration of them. Here, uh, we have ten benefits which partially overlap with the ten fetters. So we'll go through that, I think, because um, we might uh, find that useful. Anyway, we, we uh, will do that tomorrow. Huh? No, the whole, se- the whole uh, business about the uh, mindfulness of the body when one is really, really um, practicing that in, the, in its depth, one realizes uh, the, um, it comes to the realization of the past moments, as the Buddha says here. And all these um, uh, uh, similes that he uses now are all showing the end ones, the last ones, are all showing that one can actually know at will. Because when the man uh, loses the embankment, water flows. It just flows. And so one can know at will by having done, having had the past moment. So, this opportunity. All right, one sutta, one can be enlightened. Very nice. <laughs> but is there any other question about any of this? Yes. I'd just like to ask uh, two questions. One is about the, the word jhana. Where does it actually mean? Does it have an origin that we know? Did that come from the Buddha? Yes, it, it's certainly a word that the Buddha uses. And it's a, it's a Pali word. The Buddha used what we call the Pali language. And uh, we think that the Pali language is a conglomerate of northern Indian languages which were spoken 
in the area where he lived and um, it is a derivative of Sanskrit but it is a um, the co- language of a common man where Sanskrit was the language of the scholar so the Buddha used the language of the common man and it's called Pali and it only exists in the Buddha's teaching there's nothing else in the Pali language except the Buddha's teaching so when we say we are studying Pali it means we're studying the Buddha's teaching you can do you can't do one without the other so jhana is a Pali word and in English it means meditative absorption and it was the whole of the Pali canon was translated into English for the first time just about 102 years ago by one of the British um, what did you call those people that uh, under the colonial system they had uh, um, like a uh, not a governor something less than a governor sorry no 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 much less than that uh, somebody who was in charge of a certain area in India a governor no oh, maybe governor a governor um, his name was Rice Davis and uh, he was a scholar by nature but he got this post from the Queen at the time and went to India and uh, was posted there for a number of years with his wife who was there and got fascinated by finding old uh, records in Pali and wanted to find out what they were and managed to, to uh, translate numbers of them and he then he died and his wife took over so the very first translations we have into English um, they were by those two people maybe more by her than by him and uh, they are very old-fashioned English and they were both um, devout Catholics and didn't have a clue about meditation naturally where would they get it from so they call jhana trance and there are many such mis-translations mis, uh, uh, of course and this is one of the most um, uh, blatant ones so naturally in later years one realizes that that was a mistake and many of their translations they were absolute pioneers and made the Buddhist teachings available to the West which they hadn't been um, uh, have been retranslated many of their translations uh, particularly this one the Majima the Middle End Sayings this is already a new translation by Venerable Moli, also an Englishman, who was a linguistic genius. As far as I know, he spoke about 11 languages. He was a bhikkhu, a monk, <coughs> in Sri Lanka, on the island next to my nunnery, in the same lake. Um, that's, uh, that's a monastery on an island, a nunnery on an island. And uh, only lived uh, as a monk for 10 years and translated the most important uh, Pali scriptures in that time so uh, obviously jhana means meditative absorption but in those days it wasn't recognized but there's a great debt of gratitude to uh, Professor and Mrs. Rice Davis for having made the Pali canon available to the West the Pali Text Society in England had their 100th anniversary about um, three, four years ago they, that was, that was um, the first time that the uh, Pali Canon was brought to, to the Western world. 
and soon after it was translated into German equally bad and equally wrong and uh, very little of it has been retranslated because obviously English is now a world language and German isn't uh, although there are many German speaking countries it certainly doesn't have the uh, width of distribution that English has so in German we, our translations are even worse than the English one and uh, the other thing which makes it difficult is the fact that the Buddha speaks in a certain terminology which one has to understand and that was the, what the commentaries are often helpful for there's lots and lots of commentaries which were also in Pali and uh, also mostly canonized because they were done before it was all written down but some of the commentary needs another commentary so there are sub-commentaries which are not canonized which do not belong to the canon so it's a quite, a, quite a study and many scholars uh, do study it and in many universities particularly in America it's a, it's a chair at the university they, uh, so in, also in, in Germany there's two chairs of it also in two big universities. So the language we're concerned with is always what we call Pali. Pali never had an alphabet. So when it was written down, it was written down in the Sinhalese alphabet. And for that reason, the uh, belief in Sri Lanka has naturally come about that they own the Dhamma. Because it was written up in their, in their alphabet. <laughs> the natural conclusion to come to. <laughs> and uh, it was written on palm leaves which is a very interesting way of doing it uh, with a stylo now uh, a palm leaf is uh, uh, taken off a palm tree beaten and um, um, made uh, a little more solid than what it usually is for being beaten and cut into a certain shape usually like this a first ride of course has to be dried so then it gets already smaller a stylo is a thing that looks like a screwdriver with a very uh, pointed point and the letters are scratched into the palm leaf and then when the palm leaf has been uh, full of letters a, uh, um, a dark blue berry uh, is squeezed out and I have been prepared already as an ink and that is spread over the whole palm leaf and left there for a moment and as it sinks into the letters then the superfluous uh, liquid is uh, wiped off again so then one has the dark letter on the palm leaf naturally palm leaves are very um, uh, impermanent <laughs> and fragile and so there is a monastery in Sri Lanka which copies continuously the palm leaf onto a new palm leaf. Mm -hmm. So there's a continuous process going on of having the complete Pali canon, the whole Tipitika, three baskets, Tipitika, three baskets, um, rewritten in the old way with stylo, with the same kind of ink from the berries, so that there's always a new set available. The old set are not destroyed, so that monastery has 
sets of palm leaves up to the ceiling in uh, cupboards and cupboards and cupboards full of them. And once when I was there, I was a tourist there and uh, asked one of the monks how much he would like to have, how much money it would cost to buy one of those um, uh, palm leaf uh, books. They're actually put into books with a cover and everything and we don't sell those. <laughs> so I thought it was nice <laughs> that they don't sell them. Uh, the, there is supposedly um, one original book of palm leaf still in existence in Sri Lanka and kept in an airtight air, um, uh, compartment so that it doesn't fall apart. I'm not sure whether that's still true. That was true some years ago. I don't know whether it's still true. That was, they were written approximately 260 years after the Buddha's death. They were written down. So that's quite a while ago. And uh, it's about um, 250 BC that they were written down. So um, the, uh, it, it, I don't know if that's still available, if it's still in existence or not. But the, the, the Sinhalese alphabet with the Pali words is the Pali canon. And the Pali canon consists of three baskets, Tipitika. So we often call the Pali canon the Tipitika. It's a word that we call it by. The reason it's called three baskets is because it consists of the suttas, which we are reading, the Vinya, the rules for monks and nuns, and the Abhidhamma, which is the higher Dhamma. Abhi, I mean higher. And it is a collection of seven books which are analytical in content. They're not story in content like the Sutta, but analytical in content and describe the contents of the suttas in analytical mind moments and in cause and effect. So they are not something that you could, well, you can read it out, but I mean, you know, it wouldn't have the same sort of um, um, interest that one would have, although many people do study that. There are 89 different mind moments and all people do know those things by heart and very, very common in Burma. Burma is a country that really um, puts an emphasis on the Abhidhamma. So what it does, it explains all the suttas in that analytical aspect of mind moments and cause and effect. Great doubt whether the Buddha actually uh, could have said anything like that. It doesn't seem reasonable. Because it's so different from the other style of teaching. That's one reason. The other thing is that um, it's not something you can sit here and tell, tell people. It's actually like a, like a study program. So one, one, and it's totally different. I mean, it's the absolute opposite of what he does here. So um, uh, some, uh, you know, orthodox belief is yes, yes, it's from the Buddha. But the modern scholars are often um, giving reasons why it can't be. So it is um, whatever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and each of the seven books has a commentary, of course, and some have sub-commentary. 
So you can spend one or ten lifetimes studying that stuff. <laughs> but it's much preferable not to study it but to practice it. And then have from the study that we're doing um, the confirmation that one has practiced correctly and has a guideline how to go about it. I think that is the uh, most important aspect of that. The second question was just about practice. <laughs> 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 I took a long time to answer the first one, didn't I? <laughs> no, I don't think the second one will be too long. It's about the, the core of Dhyana. Yes. And um, I just wanted to make sure that I understood what you said correctly about the hearing, the aspect of hearing. Did you say it ceases? Yes. Yes. yes, there's no hearing at that time because the mind is so in absorbed into its uh, consciousness factor that it is like drowning. When you're drowning, you don't hear, well, I mean, like, say, I haven't drowned, but let's say one is diving underwater. One doesn't hear anything, one is underwater. <coughs> Yeah. Right. Well, this is very similar. The water aspect is only a metaphor. Yeah. So there is that actual being away from. That's why I said earlier, one isn't here, but one isn't anywhere else either. Yeah, it's just also said in that description indicated that there was awareness of body. Yes, yes, a thing with a cloth all over the body. I don't think that is meant. I think what is meant is that it is overall. I think the reason the Buddha refers to the body here is because the whole Sutta is about the body, mindfulness of the body. And he uses the metaphor of the body in all of the jhanas, all four, right? But surely we are not aware of the body after we leave the first one. So what he's doing is he's using the metaphor to show that it is uh, overall. Encompassing, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that it can't be anything else. Because when we, one one knows that from the practice that the body consciousness leaves the awareness of the body leaves already when you get, well, at least to the third one. And even in the second one, the uh, conscious, the awareness is also um, of the uh, emotional state. But what um, he's um, using this particular body thing on all of them. He says here, he says, with the lotuses, um, and throughout this body, and there's nothing of this whole body to which the pleasure divested of happiness does not extend, which is talking about the third one. And then the fourth one with the uh, uh, clothes, closed from head to foot in a pure white cloth. And uh, the second one also throughout the body um, as a lake whose waters welled up. So he's using the body as a metaphor in all of them. And uh, it surely doesn't mean consciousness of the body. 
I mean, if the fourth one had consciousness of the body, it would be reverting back to the first one. Okay? Yes. Right. So we shall stretch our legs and then meditate.